0: Hello and welcome back to the HSF Banking Litigation podcast, our last podcast of the summer. David Barr here and I am delighted to say that I am joined as ever by Kerry Morgan, our Banking Lit pundit, aka our Banking Litigation PSL. And we have with us this month Dan Ezier-Fuller, Senior Associate here in the banking team. Kerry, to kick us off, you've been looking at a couple of contractual construction cases. Uh, The first, correct me if I'm wrong, is a Court of Appeal decision looking at rectification in the context of a common mistake. Feels sort of like a back-to-basics kind of case but actually it seems there's been some helpful clarification from the court of appeal.
1: Yes yes indeed so this is the case of FSHC Group Holdings and GLAS Trust Corporation. Definitely some helpful clarification here as to be honest the law was in a bit of a mess on this test with conflicting authority and uncertainty. Given the volume and complexity of documents in financial transactions, rectification is an important part of a bank's armoury to sort things out if a contract fails to give effect to what was in fact agreed. So an important decision to be aware of. The judgment itself reflects on the development of authority in this area since the 18th century. I will avoid a jurisprudence history tour as I suspect it would not work well in the podcast forum. Um, So in a nutshell, uh, the great debate on rectification for common mistake has been whether this is an objective or subjective test. And now we have the answer.
0: I feel like we should up our uh, sound effects game, have a drum roll. Then. Yeah,
1: okay. I think we should resist that, David. Uh, so, well, the answer is sort of both, because the court has distinguished between two different forms of rectification for common mistake based on different principles. So firstly, the objective test. A party may seek rectification of a contract because it failed to give effect to a prior concluded contract or agreement. Now this is an objective test, looking at the terms of that prior contract. However, rectification can also be sought where a contract fails to give effect to a common intention. This is mainly where the objective-subjective debate has previously centred, and the court has confirmed that the existence of a common intention must be established as a subjective state of mind. So this is based on considerations of good faith, so it would be unconscionable to enforce the terms of a written contract if that contract is inconsistent with what both parties in fact intended. Here it's important to be able to show that as a result of the communication between the parties they had understood each other to share that intention.
2: So what if only one of the parties has a mistaken understanding of the contract and not the other?
1: Well then you're in the slightly different territory of unilateral mistake rather than common mistake i.e. where both parties misunderstand. Rectification for unilateral mistake is only available where one party has a mistaken understanding of the contract, and the other party is both aware of that mistake and does not draw attention to it. So it's an extension of the same basic principle we're discussing here on common intention, which is all based on good faith. Anyway, to put all of this into context, we can look briefly at the facts of this case. It was a fairly complex corporate acquisition but the nuts and bolts were in essence that the claimant was supposed to provide security in the form of an assignment uh, for the of the benefit of a shareholder of a loan and it later transpired that this had been omitted from the security documentation. To try and correct the situation, the parties entered into two deeds, but there were unintended consequences flowing from those deeds, which left the claimant with additional onerous obligations on top of actually providing the missing security. The trial judge had found, as a matter of fact, that when the deeds were executed both parties understood and intended for them to do no more than to provide the missing security. In other words, he found that the parties subjectively had a common intention which had been communicated between them. On this basis, applying the newly clarified test, the Court of Appeal agreed with the trial judge that the deeds should be rectified to exclude the additional obligations from their scope.
0: And what would you say is a sort of key takeaway for financial institutions, Okay.
1: Well, it's possible for financial institutions to be on either side of a claim for rectification, depending on the fat pattern. And so the simple point really is just that the Appellate Court clarification of this test is likely to be welcomed by the sector, given the previous conflicting authority and uncertainty. And then I suppose, secondly, unless there's an appeal to the Supreme Court, what this means in practice is that it will be more difficult to establish a claim for rectification for a common mistake. There's a sort of double lock where not only do you have to show that both parties had a particular intention, but also that the parties understood one another to share that intention.
0: Good stuff. Uh, and then you've also been looking into the N and RBS decision in the commercial court that was looking at a bank's discretion to close a customer account without notice where there was suspicion of money laundering. And this is our our deep dive this month.
1: Yes, that's right. So this is N and RBS for our deep dive. So this is a really interesting decision looking at the type of civil claim a bank may be exposed to where it's taken action in relation to a customer's account where there's a suspicion that the account is being used for money laundering purposes. So the focus in this particular case was on the bank's terms and conditions uh, with the customer, which gave the bank a contractual discretion to close the customer's account and to delay or refuse to process payments in certain circumstances. So just on the fact of this one, the bank's customer, who I'll refer to as N, uh, was an authorised payment institution providing foreign exchange and payment services to its customers. N had a number of main accounts and client accounts with the bank, The bank suspected that several of N's own clients were involved in certain scams and that the victims had paid money into the sub-accounts at the bank, and so the bank froze several of those clients' sub-accounts and found that there had been co-mingling or mixing between the sub-accounts and the main accounts. So after the sub-accounts had been frozen, there was an attempted payment from one of the main accounts which suggested that N's clients were trying to find a way around the freezing of the sub-accounts. At this point, the bank froze the main accounts and terminated its relationship with N immediately. So N brought proceedings against the bank, claiming breach of contract and negligence. So the result from the commercial court was that under the terms of the contract, the bank was entitled to terminate its relationship without notice in these circumstances, i.e. it had exercised its contractual discretion appropriately.
2: What type of contractual discretion did the bank have? Because there seem to have been a lot of cases recently looking at the different forms of contractual discretion in financial documentation.
1: Yeah, Dan, you're absolutely right. So there have been some really interesting cases in the past few years looking at contractual discretions. Um, Broadly, the sliding scale goes from the absolute discretion of the bank at one end to the so-called braganza duty somewhere in the middle through to the objective reasonableness at the other end.
0: And sorry, can you just sort of... Take us through the substance of the uh, the braganza duty again.
1: Yeah, yeah, of course. So, sorry, what we mean by braganza duty is that the decision maker must exercise its discretion in a way which is not arbitrary, capricious, or irrational. So, it's essentially importing public law principles into the exercise of a commercial party's contractual discretion. So, since the financial crisis, we've seen quite a few examples of this principle being applied to scrutinize the exercise of a contractual discretion in a financial services context. And it's particularly interesting in our sector because the difference between the irrationality standard versus the objective reasonableness standard also pops up with the ISDA master agreement when looking at the contractual discretion of the non-defaulting party to determine closeout calculations. But anyway, if we think back to the spectrum of contractual discretions, the test of rationality is easier to satisfy than one of objective reasonableness, which means the decision-maker will have generally a greater latitude in making its decision, with the court less likely to interfere.
2: So, coming back to the question of what type of discretion the court had.
1: Oh, yeah, sorry. So, getting back on track. Um, in RBS, the court didn't try to grapple with what precise standard the bank was required to meet under the terms of the contract. It simplified the exercise by saying the bank had, in any event, satisfied the standard of objective reasonableness, i.e. the higher standard. And in reaching this conclusion, the court made a detailed assessment of the various challenges to the exercise of the bank's discretion put forward by N. I don't really have time to go into them all here, but for more detail you can read our blog post, which is linked in the show notes.
0: Do you want us to pick out one challenge that you'd like to highlight?
1: Uh, Yep, so one which struck me as being helpful for wider application was that the court rejected a particularly broad contention put forward by N, where N suggested that unless complicity or fraud is proved to have been carried out by the customer itself, Closing the account without notice could never rationally be adopted by a bank. But on the facts of this case, the contract provided for without notice closure in, in quotation marks, exceptional circumstances, not where there's established complicity or fraud proved. So um, this argument was rejected by the court. So regrettably here the court chose not to grapple with a number of other areas of interest from an um, anti-money laundering compliance perspective which are raised by the case. For example if ring fencing might be a permissible alternative to freezing an account but I don't have time to discuss further here so please see the blog post for this which has some really excellent commentary on these issues by one of our CCI partners uh, Susanna Cogman.
0: Helpful case, it seems, then, for banks who are faced with this dilemma. But as we move into one of our procedural developments that you've picked up on, Dan, you've got a a striking judgment from the Supreme Court on the ability of non-parties to access court documents. Is that right? Uh, Yes, indeed. A very striking case. Uh, The first case I'm going to be looking at is
2: Cape Intermediate Holdings and Dring. Now, this is definitely a a really key procedural development for in-house lawyers at banks to be aware of. Uh, the case considered the rights of non-parties to litigation to access trial documents with the court's permission so essentially looking at cpr 5.4 c2 to just briefly look at the case's journey through the courts the high court had initially granted a very broad order essentially giving the non-party access to the entirety of the paper trial bundle as well as skeletons and transcripts the court of appeal then reined this back in and said that the records of the court within the cpr provision would not normally include things like trial bundles witness statements, expert reports, skeletons, written submissions or transcripts. But this decision has now been reversed by the Supreme Court. So now the default position is that the public should be allowed access not only to the parties written submissions and arguments, but also to the documents which have been placed before the court and referred to during the hearing. So this isn't limited to what the judge has been asked to read or what he or she says they've read. This is just in case the judge forgot or ignored some important piece of information. So the upshot of all this is that it'll be easier for non-parties to access a much wider range of documents, which leads obviously to the potential danger here that non-parties will try to make use of this broader scope of access as a phishing expedition to find documents which might be helpful in other pieces of litigation.
1: So that sounds to me like bad news from the perspective of parties who are commonly defendants to litigation, such as financial institutions or perhaps other big corporates. But non-parties, surely they still have to apply for permission, right?
2: Mm, yeah, that, that's right. So the procedure is still the same and should hopefully provide the necessary safeguards against this sort of phishing for documents. When considering applications for non-parties, the court has to balance the potential value of the information, in advancing the purpose of the open justice principle, against any risk of harm in providing that information. And the courts also distinguish between clean copies of trial bundles, which it said may be the simplest way of providing non-parties with access, and copies that contain markings or annotations. Disclosure of those won't be ordered without the consent of the person holding the bundle. So basically the range of documents available is wider, but the same gateway is in place for obtaining permission
0: for access. Right. And we have a, a link again in the show notes to a blog on that. Um, and, and then, Dan, you've got what seems like a fairly complex case on exclusive jurisdiction clauses. Can you sort of walk us through this, this decision?
2: Yes, absolutely. Hopefully not too complex. But this is the decision of Gulf International Bank and Aldwood. Uh, and it looked at the power of an English court, which currently uh, is obviously deemed an EU court, to stay proceedings in England, an EU member state currently, to give effect to an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of a non-EU court. Um, and As you say, at first sight it might look like it's a tricky one, but breaking it down, the first point to remember is that the recast Brussels regulation contains express powers for an EU court to state its own proceedings in certain circumstances. Now one of those circumstances is if another set of proceedings which are identical or related have already been started in a non-EU court. Now, this is one of the new changes brought in in the recast Brussels regulation a few years ago, and there are express powers for this at Articles 33 and 34. So, if there's an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of a non-EU court, and proceedings have been commenced in that court first in time, then EU court has the power to stay its own proceedings. So, so far, so good. But the question the court looked at in this case is what should happen if there's an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of a non-EU court, But those proceedings in the non-EU court haven't yet commenced. Now the short answer from the English court is that an EU court does not have the power to stay its own proceedings under the recast Brussels regulation. And this is even where there's an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of the non-EU court. And this is on the basis that the non-EU court proceedings were not first in time and therefore articles 33 and 34 don't apply. So it's a decision that chips away slightly at the power of EU courts to say proceedings in cases of an
0: exclusive jurisdiction clause in another non-EU jurisdiction. And obviously we've got renewed interest in the position of third countries in in EU law parlance as the possibility of a no-deal Brexit looms large.
2: Yeah, well, yes. uh, This decision casts doubt on how effective an English jurisdiction clause would be in a no-deal scenario if the Hague Convention of Choice of Court Agreements 2005 is found not to apply. So on the basis of this this decision, if the Hague Convention doesn't apply, then an EU court would only be able to stay proceedings commenced in breach of an English exclusive jurisdiction clause, where the English proceedings were commenced first in time.
0: I think there's a detailed blog post on this decision, which, uh, David, I think you've put a link to this, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely, in the show notes, um, but not wishing to to dwell too much on this uh, subject. Kerry, you're, you're going to wrap up with a look towards developments in securities litigation, again with a, an EU angle here.
1: Yes, that's right. So I just wanted to mention very briefly the new EU prospectus regulation, which came fully into force across the EU from the 21st of July. So this replaces the prospectus directive regime and is the most significant overhaul of European securities law since the directive came into force back in 2005. So there are some significant changes for securities litigators in terms of what this will mean for Section 90 FISMA claims, in particular looking at the general disclosure requirement for prospectuses and risk factors. So for our thoughts on this, please do check out our blog post. There's a link in the show notes.
0: Fabulous. Well, that's it for this month. So thanks to Dan for joining Kerry and myself. And with this episode, it's a farewell from me. Next month, you'll be blessed with the dulcet tones of John Corrie. So see you then. And thanks for listening.